When I played football back in junior high, we had a coach by the name of Coach Snuffy Williams, and I learned a lot from Coach Williams about team. Uh, Coach Williams had kind of a reputation and kind of a legend among junior higher and their parents in Rochester, Minnesota, for producing winning teams no matter what kind of athletes that he had. And kind of how it worked, uh, there were no stars on the team. It was always about the team, us functioning together, committed, one cohesive unit. And how this worked is on the very first day of practice, every single player was given a playbook, and you were required to memorize it, and you were told that whatever play is called, that is the play that you must run. You must execute it to perfection, and if you were not able to memorize the playbook, or you weren't able to actually put it into practice when the coach made the call, you just never made it into the game. It didn't matter how good you were, you had to be able to know the play and to do it. Now, that seems rather simple, makes sense, and I want you to know it had outstanding results. I even got some hardware and some box in my attic to prove it. If you could follow the directions, there would be success. Now, what would happen, whether it be in practice or in the game, if you didn't run the right route, you missed your block, you weren't where you're supposed to be, the coach would come up and Coach Williams would be standing there, he'd be holding his playbook, and he would just ask this question, what are you doing? And I want you to know for a junior high boy that just was in the wrong place or you missed your block, that was very memorable and you generally didn't have a real good excuse. Now, I want you to know that when you're playing football, you've got 11 other people on the other side of the ball, they are determined to blow up that play, whatever it was called. But it didn't matter what was taking place on the other side of the ball. You were to stay focused on what you could do and what you should do. You see, running the play that the coach has called is absolutely critical for success in football. I want you to know that if you know God's purpose for your life, Jesus has called a play. You'll remember as we began this ser- series in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most memorable uh, sermon, at the very end he gave the purpose of life. And that is the purpose of life is to grow mature in Christ. And you remember how he ended it. He said in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. What you need to know is that the purpose of life is to grow mature in Christ. And just like a builder is going to build that house or that building on the sure and steadfast foundation, so you and I, we are called to build our life upon Christ. We are to hear his words. That means we understand them. And we are to act upon them. We are to put into practice that what, in what, he, what he said. And so you need to understand that if you know that the purpose of life is to grow and mature in Christ, that Jesus has called a play. He wants us to be about his work. And if you're saying, well, like, I would love to know what that play is. What exactly am I even supposed to be doing? There's not to be, supposed to be any mystery You find it in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16 through 20. This is what we are to do. These particular verses are like the acorn from which the church, the tree, emerges. They are not only the climax of the gospel of Matthew, 
They are the focal point of the entire New Testament. You need to know that what we are to engage in is what Jesus called making disciples. You see, as we go through life, we're to help others know and grow mature in him. You see, our personal journey of maturity, we're to be involved in others in helping them grow in Christ. So what do followers of Christ need in order to fulfill his call of making disciples in life? What do we need to know? It's all found in these verses. And it begins with this. If you and I are going to run the play that Jesus called, we've got to have a compelling devotion. Look at beginning in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. You've got the eleven. The twelfth, Judas, no longer a part of the gang. In fact, he completely takes himself out of the picture after he uh, denies and betrays Jesus. And so you've got the 11 apostles that were with him in his public ministry. Jesus had already made public appearances to them. You also have Jesus making some public appearances to these women who go to the tomb and find that he's not there. But do you notice that you, you find that you've got the 11 and they worship him, but some of these are doubtful. You've got likely more than just the 11 and the few women that went to the tomb. Many biblical scholars think that this is the 500 others. You remember, it says that Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared in his resurrected form to more than 500 other people. This is believed when that takes place. And so you're about 20 days to 35 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, that Jesus had called to a designated place in Galilee. He sent his 11 disciples to meet him there. And you've got others that are up in this area of Galilee, which is even referred to as the Galilee of the Gentiles. And he is going to make an appearance. He is going to speak to his believers and to those who, are going, who follow him. You see, most of Jesus' enemies were down in the south, specifically in Jerusalem. In fact, they had killed him there, right? They put him to death. And so he is going to commission his followers. It is referred to as the Great Commission. And so you see that Jesus, they, they all proceed to Galilee, and Jesus makes his appearance to this mountain that he had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. The eleven who had seen the resurrected Christ before, the women who had been and seen him before, now they see him again. And they worship him. Perhaps they say, said the statements like Thomas did. You remember after his, all of his uh, doubt was assuaged? Remember and doubting Thomas went to absolutely believing Thomas. And he said, my Lord and my God. Maybe they were uttering statements like that. Do you know that in the Gospels, there's only one other time where it's explicitly stated that Jesus' disciples worshipped him. And that is at the time when Jesus actually walked on the water and appeared to them and actually entered into their boat when they were in a storm. And it says that the disciples worshipped him, and this is what they said, you are certainly God's son. So these who had seen him resurrected before, 
are either uttering these statements out loud or they're in their heart. They're saying, you are the Lord. You're the risen Messiah. Certainly you are God's son. You are my Lord and my God. But here's something rather troubling. Verse 17, it says, but some were doubtful. These were likely part of the group of the 500. I mean, think of it. So you have Jesus and he's making his way. His disciples recognize him. They've already seen him before in his resurrected state. They begin worship, these declarations. But there are others who had never seen. They had certainly heard Jesus is risen from the grave. But they're not just quick to just, well, someone said it. They want to make absolutely sure. And I want you to know that verses like this show us the integrity and the authenticity of the scripture. They show that it is absolutely inspired and inerrant, because Matthew, as do all the biblical writers, they write it just the way it happened. You see, if the, the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax, the disciples just want to make that up, well, then you know what would happen? They would take things like this out of there. They would never put that in there. You need to understand, they write it just the way it is. They're not trying to rework history, rewrite it. No, they're going to put it and everything just the way it happened. And I want you to know this word doubtful, it really means like hesitant or they were indecisive. It, it doesn't mean that they had an intellectual unbelief. It's just like they wanted to make sure. And I want you to know that all of their doubt was removed in this very next verse. Look at verse 18. They're not sure. Is, is that really Jesus? I mean, think of it. Him who was crucified, put in a grave, he's, he's walking. The eleven, these women, they're saying, this is Jesus. There he is, the resurrected one, the Messiah. They're worshiping. They're like, I, I want to make sure. They're hesitating, but all doubt is removed in verse 18. And Jesus came up, literally moved towards. You can see him. They're all gathered together. Imagine about 500 plus people all gathered together. Jesus is approaching. They're all gathering around. They want to see. They've got to, they, some of them want to touch. And they see this one. He's got nail-pierced hands. He's walking. And all doubt goes away when Jesus opens his mouth and he speaks to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I've got the absolute divine right to use power. All authority in heaven and on earth. I am the absolute sovereign Lord. The resurrection is the ultimate validation that Jesus has absolute divine authority. In the Gospel of Matthew, time and time again, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the sovereign one. You see it like, for instance, he's got sovereignty over the human body. He can heal the sick and the blind and the lame. He has the ability to overcome disease and sickness and brokenness. He has the power and authority over demons. He can cast them out. He's got power and authority over the natural elements like the wind and the waves. He can simply put up his hand and say, be still. And it happens. He's got the authority over the Sabbath. He's got power over sin. He even can raise people from the dead. And he did on three different occasions. Jesus even has the sovereign authority to actually invest his ability and his authority in the lives of his followers 
and does on several occasions. But I want you to see what, why this is so important. Before Jesus calls us to do anything, he calls us to worship. Before he makes the charge, you're to make disciples of all the nations, he says, I want you to worship me. He calls us to wonder and amazement. He calls us to a place where we're regularly thrilled about who he is, that we're overcome with a sense of awe, that we're drawn to his compassion and his love and his power and his strength and his ability to fulfill scripture. You see, who you believe God to be shapes how you live. Who you believe God to believe shapes what you do with your time, the priorities of your family, how you see your finances and what you do with them, how you see the direction of your family, what you're going to do with your life, how you're going to handle yourself, what you deal with difficulty, what you think of yourself. It's your view of God that shapes everything about you. And oftentimes people have a low view, a diminished view of God. And that explains so much of life. You see, if you do not see Jesus for who he is, you will not do what he says. If you do not see Jesus for who he is, you will not do what he says. And I want you to notice this making disciples. It doesn't begin with Jesus saying, this is what I want you to do. Now get after it. No, it begins with this. Jesus saying, look at me. I am the Lord. I am the risen Savior. I am the Messiah. I am divine, and I'm going to perform my work through you. I have the authority. You see, we've got to have a clear vision of Jesus, and that brings a compelling devotion to our life. If we're going to be about making disciples, it all begins by having a compelling devotion. But I also want you to see, once Jesus makes this statement about his authority, he appears to them, they all are worshiping, then it is, at this time, that he gives them clear direction. He commissions them. And so we find it in verse 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So it begins with worship. You see Jesus for who he is. There is this delight and devotion to him. And then he calls the play. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go, therefore, on the basis of my authority. I have both the authority to command you. I even have the authority to make this possible in you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. That is the imperative verb. Now, it's qualified by three participles. It should be translated as you're going, baptizing, and teaching. That is the essence of the plague. But what we're supposed to be doing is to make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? It's someone who is taught by another. A disciple isn't like, like just a church member or someone who's a convert per se. A disciple is really more like an apprentice. Someone who has attached himself to another to learn from them, to be with them, to, to assimilate their skills, to take everything in that they possibly can. And discipleship was not uh, like unique with Jesus. For instance, you're going to find that this was somewhat of a common phenomenon in the ancient world. There were people that had significant wisdom that had followers. They were even referred to as disciples. But what makes Jesus' discipleship ministry so unique 
is that it broke down barriers, ethnic barriers, social and economic barriers. And what Jesus did is call people to a personal relationship with himself. It's a saving relationship, but it is an eternal, lifelong relationship. And it's one where we never become the master, but we are always learning, growing, enjoying. We are always with him. It is an eternal relationship. And I want you to see that Jesus doesn't say, I need you to just kind of get out of the way. I need you to not talk because you have a propensity to mess things up. No, what he says is that I am going to use you. I am going to use you to make disciples of all the nations. He is going to use you. Despite your fears and your inadequacies, our great failures, all of our wickedness, our waywardness, despite our sin, whatever our past, despite whatever uh, lack of education we have, our insecurities that we experience, I'm going to use you, your experiences, your education, but I want you to know that my plan is to use you. That's the play. I'm going to use you to make disciples. And this is the strategy. It's going, baptizing, and teaching. You see it right there. He says, first of all, this is the strategy. It's just like a coach who calls the play in football. So he's saying, this is what I want you to do. First of all, you are going. It, is, it should be translated like, as you're going. It assumes that you're moving forward, that you're actually living life. You are to take the initiative as a way of life. You're making relational connections. And he says, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. You see, Jesus is the ultimate authority. And by virtue of the fact that he is the ultimate authority, he's got this sweeping commission that goes throughout the entire world. This isn't meant to be isolated in Israel. I want making disciples to be universal, worldwide. And you don't necessarily need to leave where you're at. You just need to live where you are. I want you going, connecting, relating to people, being with them. Now, that, there are going to be some people that are going to be called to go to other nations. But really, it's got to get started where you're at. So how do you go and reach out to people as a way of life? What does that practically look like? If we're to run the play... And it begins with us actually going. What, is, what does it look like to go and reach out to people? Well, let me just tell you real simply. First of all, it means just be relational. Just learn how to interact and connect with people. You want to be friendly? Learn how to be gracious. Show an interest in other people. Ask some good questions. Express kindness. Be winsome. Build trust. Uh, demonstrate care, but you want to be relational. After all, this is the play that Jesus has called. I want you to go. So you be relational. And let me also tell you, be real. Don't try to be someone that you're not. You want to be true to life. Do not be fake. You don't want to be hypocritical. People can spot hypocrisy a mile away, and they run from it. They don't want superficiality. They want you to be real. Just be who you are as a growing disciple of Jesus. You don't have to change your personality. You don't have to act like anybody else. You just be who you are in Christ. You be relational. You be real. 
And let me tell you this, be redemptive. Remember, we're all cut out of the same bolt of cloth. We're all sinners by nature, self-centered individuals. We all need a Savior, and God has provided one who not only pays the penalty for our sins, but he gives us life. We repent and receive. Jesus brings about growth and transformation. And so you want to be redemptive. After all, Christians are people who believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. It is all that God has done, is doing, and will do through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. And it's referred, the word gospel means good news. It's the good news of Jesus, that he has the power of God to eternally save people from the penalty of sin and to uh, unite believers with himself and his resurrected life so that his life is lived out through them. That is the gospel. It is the good news. And so as you go, be redemptive. Do not give people the impression that you just have to be a good person and that God just likes us being good. And so you're trying to be good to earn God's favor or worse. That don't give people the impression that, man, you've got to be as smart as I am. Uh, you've got to have the gifts and the skills and the opportunities. Otherwise, God's just really not interested in you. No. We're all just sinners, and there is nothing perfect about us but our Savior. That's what we want to communicate to people. We want to be redemptive. We want people to see Jesus for who he is and the work that he does. And so that's what you do. You don't want to convey to people that you're the self-made individual. You want to convey to people that Jesus is in the business of taking wreckage and brokenness and bringing life and forgiveness. And so we're to go. That's the play. For some of us, that means we're supposed to even go next door. We're to engage the people in our community, in our schools, at work. For some, that means that we might have to go to another nation. But you are to go. And so what you do is just ask God to do this. Lord, would you open doors? Open doors for me to show and to share the love of Christ. If you were willing to pray that, get ready. God's going to show you. You might find that you have been missing opportunities for years. And so where to go? And I want you to think for just a minute. Think of the people that were on mission with you. Think of the people that God used to help you understand who Jesus is and the forgiveness and the life that he brings. Maybe it was your parents or a grandparent or a brother or sister. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher. Maybe it's some of your friends, someone at school, someone in your group, someone at work that actually was doing what Jesus says is as you are going, they were engaging They were being relational, they were being real, and they were being redemptive. They weren't afraid to talk about Jesus. Those are the people that God used in your life. God wants to do the same now with you. And I've thought about just even my own life. It was back in high school when there were a couple of students in my large school that actually were on mission. They were relational, they were real, and they were redemptive. There was a guy by the name of Noel, and there was a gal by the name of Mary, and they talked with me about Jesus, about life, looking to engage, having conversation, had a huge effect on me. 
And then when I get to college at the University of Oregon, there were two girls in this department store that I worked at, Becky and Elion. You know what they did? They were relational. They were real. They actually cared enough. They were redemptive. In the house that I lived in, there were two guys, Doug and Frank. You know what they were? They were the real deal. In fact, they lived in the house to show and to share the love of Christ. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to follow the play. And so that play means that we're going. We are taking the initiative as a way of life to engage people. But second of all, notice what he says. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are helping people learn to identify with Jesus. You know what baptism is? It is an outward expression of an inward reality. Baptizing people or having a person being baptized, that doesn't save you from your sin. What it does is reveal that you are trusting in Christ. To give you kind of a definition of baptism, it is a ceremony by which a person is immersed or submerged into water to identify that they are vitally united with the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Baptism is all about identification. I identify with Jesus. I identify with his death and his resurrection. I identify with his salvation. I identify with his people. That's what baptism is. It shows that you've got a willingness to identify with Jesus, to go his way, and you're willing to be identified with his people. And notice what the text says, baptizing them in the name singular, and yet it is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is who God is. Three persons in one. Singular name, but there is the triunity of God. Even though you'll not find the word Trinity in the Bible, you see the expression of God of who he is, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the name represents the person. We are identified with him. And why is it so important that we help people identify with Jesus? And in this case, through baptism, it's because this. Openly identifying with Christ sets us on a trajectory for maturity. It keeps you and I from going incognito, the secret disciple of Jesus. No one in school knows that you're a Christian. No one at work ever found out because you weren't actually ongoing, being real and relational or redemptive. And furthermore, you never actually identified with Jesus he wants you to identify with him. Our relationship with Jesus is meant to be personal, but it is never meant to always be private. After all, he has called you to himself and he has also called a play. And that play is going and baptizing, helping people identify with Jesus. And then the third aspect of that play is found in verse 20. We're to be going as we go. We're to help people identify with Jesus. And verse 20, we are to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We are to communicate truth that brings transformation. You see, God wants us to enjoy a relationship with him that is warm, joy-filled, that is truth-based. And that is why we are to teach them to observe. That has the idea to keep 
uh, to keep as an action, to basically practice as a way of one's life. He wants us to teach all. Did you see that? You might want to underline that. Not just a little bit, not just, just the gospel. He wants us to teach all that he's commanded. He wants people to reach the state of maturity where there is full development and function. And the only way that is possible is if all of the word is taught. You see, how it works is we are running the play of going, helping people identify with Jesus, and we are teaching. We want to help people's understanding be about God, about hell, heaven, sin, morals, ethics. We want to have absolute biblical clarity, and so we teach. But it's more than just giving them knowledge. It's from this understanding that God wants to shape our convictions, what we really believe, our values, our attitudes. They're shaped by the word. And you and I always live out our values. We always live out what we believe. And so teaching also includes conduct, but it is rooted in relationship with Christ, knowing, understanding, believing, then behaving. That's what God intends. And this teaching, it can happen in a lot of different settings. It could be formal, like in a sermon like this, or it can be in like a class, but oftentimes it's informal. It's just those one-on-one relationships. Maybe it's a small group. It's that personal discipleship where you are investing in the life of another, but I want you to know that this is the play that Jesus has called. I want you to be involved in teaching. And how it works is this. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to accomplish the work of God in an individual. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to teach everything. All that I commanded you. It's like what you see what Paul writes. Remember, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, verse 14. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. You see that? The Old Testament brings about not only pointing our need for the Savior, but showing how Jesus Christ is that Savior, that Messiah. And we believe. But furthermore, he says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and it's proper for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God's word equips us for the fullness of life, the fullness of maturity. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants his people to live, to grow to the fullness of maturity, and that cannot happen apart from the word being taught. And so what you want to do, if you're really going to follow the play that Jesus has given us, you've got to find some natural ways to teach. You want to, might want to just start even with your family, like just in the car or just everyday conversation. Or when you're at work, or when you're at school, just as you're doing things, when you're on break. And the church gives you opportunities to actually do this, where you can be involved in the lives of whether it be young people or students, college kids, adults. But we want to be about the business of the master. We want to run the play that he has called. You see, as we go through life, 
We're to help others to know and to grow mature in Christ. So how are we to do that? Well, it all begins with a compelling devotion. It has clear direction. We're going, we're helping people identify with Jesus, and we're teaching. And don't miss how it ends. We go with a confident dependence. Look at the end of verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This word lo, it's kind of an interjection that you find that basically says, pay close attention, I'm going to say something profound. And what he says is, I am with you always. Me, the resurrected living one, says Jesus, I'm never going to leave you. Nothing can separate you from me. I am with you always. I will see that you have the strength to do as I've asked. I know that you would be afraid of this, that you will be silenced by fear. You will be intimidated by others. But I want you to know this is the play that I've called and I empower you to do it. I am with you always. Trust me. It's really kind of a powerful echo of how the gospel of Matthew began. When Jesus is announced, he is announced to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the gospel ends by saying, Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What you and I need, if we're really going to run the play that Jesus called, is a confident dependence. And so what it looks like is this, Lord, you pray, would you do your work through me? You love these people more than I do. You know that I'm afraid. You know that I feel inadequate. You know that I feel like I've got such a wretched past that you could never use me. But I believe, I take you at your word, would you do your work through me? And the resurrected Christ says, listen, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus, who's come the first time, has promised to return. He is going to judge the world, and he is going to set up an earthly kingdom. Between his first coming and his second coming is this church age, and we are to be about the business of the master, and that is specifically to make disciples of all the nations. The goal of discipleship is this. For a person to know and grow mature in Christ, this is the purpose of life, and this is the play that Jesus called. And you need to know that people are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission of making disciples of Christ. So in just a couple minutes, you know what's going to happen? We're going to break this huddle. Right now, we're all huddled up. Some of you, I can even see it. You're like fired up. I, w- I want to do this. I want to keep doing this. I want to run this play. But I want you to know that when you walk through those doors, there is a defense ready to destroy the play that Jesus has called. To make you fearful. To intimidate you. It is the lust of the flesh. It is the world. And it is the devil. And I want you to know the opposition is formidable. Satan has been highly successful of getting Christians to give up on the play. And I want you to know that Jesus didn't tell us, listen, you just go call an audible and do what you want. No, what he's called us to do is to follow him and take him 
at his word. And as we go through life, we're to help others to know and grow mature in Christ. That is what we are called to do. Let's pray. Lay. Lord, only you could give such clarity as to how we are to live your priority for your people, that we're to make disciples. And you actually tell us how we're to do it, to have a compelling sense of devotion, to have the clear direction of going and, and baptizing where people are identifying with you and to teach. And we are to do so knowing that you are with us always. So, Lord, help this to be a reality in our homes, in this church, in our community, and in our world. And if there's someone here who has never placed their faith in Christ, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, I trust in you. Forgive me of my sins and fill me with your life and your grace. And Lord, may you see what you've asked us to do being accomplished in our lives in this generation. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.